Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Titan Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing pretty good. Checked out a restaurant that opened a couple years ago in my neighborhood that I'd been meaning to try. It was fine. But they did kind of a weird thing, where on the outside of the building on the sign, it says what year it was established. And that was only a couple of years ago, and they have it printed on the menus, too. That always strikes me as a weird choice, because unless it was like a really long time ago, who gives a fuck? That's not impressive. And by the time it is impressive, they'll need to print new menus and probably change that sign. So I was wondering why businesses bother doing that. And then it occurred to me, I bet it's to trick Godzilla. Like, if he attacks the city and sees a date printed on the side of the building, he's probably going to assume that that's the expiration date, and then he won't eat the building. Now I know what you're thinking. Godzilla doesn't eat buildings. And to that I say, see, it's working. Well, I think that's just about enough of that nonsense. But hey, if you're looking for a different kind of nonsense, have I got a comic book to talk about with you. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Maxwell Hauser. If you ask an undercover snake if he's police, he will have to reply, I'm a cop, hiss. Because otherwise he's facing an entrapment beef. Now let's all listen to the synopsis. Thanks, Maxwell. Defenders, number 60. June, 1978. The Revenge of Vera Gemini. Written by David Anthony Kraft. Drotted by Ed Hannigan. Inked by Dan Green. Colored by Francois Mouly. Lettered by Rick Parker. And edited by Jim Shooter. Defensive lineup. Doctor Strange, The Incredible Hulk, Valkyrie, Nighthawk, Hellcat, Devil Slayer, Wong, a little, and Dollar Bill, maybe. Previously in the Defenders. Oh boy. Doctor Strange was snoozing in his sanctum sanctimonious when a masked jerk with a toothed beak for a nose popped in and surprised the sleeping sorcerer. In addition to his peculiar proboscis, the masked jerk in question also had a magic teleportation cape from which he could summon any weapon he wanted. The beaked burglar bopped Steve on the noodle, stole the mystical eye of Agamotto, and teleported away. While Steve nursed his wounds, a dehulkified Bruce Banner and Valkyrie were being treated to a night on the town by Val's new college buddy, a wealthy film student named Dollar Bill. To the surprise of no one, the trio's evening out proved to be a less than tranquil one. Within minutes of arriving at the thinly veiled analog for the Playboy Club to which Bill had taken them, Val ran afoul of a disguised superhero named Eric Simon Payne, aka Devil Slayer. Eric was a Vietnam veteran with minor psychic abilities and a magic cape similar to the one sported by the beaked bozo who bonked Steve. He had been working as a hitman for the mob when he was recruited and trained by a cult of demon worshippers. But when he found out that they were an evil cult of demon worshippers, Eric turned on his former mentors and dedicated his life to opposing their diabolical shenanigans. The mercurial former mercenary had gone to the club that night to confront the cult's leader, an insidious enchantress named Vera Gemini. 
Vera told Devil Slayer that one of her underlings had stolen the Eye of Agamotto for her, and she planned on using the optical occult object to summon a whole bunch of demons to the planet in a ritual called Xenogenesis. Eric wasn't crazy about that plan, so he attacked the strangely surnamed sorceress. From across the club, Valkyrie witnessed the altercation and attempted to intervene, leading to the inevitable misunderstanding, trademark, induced superheroic scuffle. Bruce Banner hulked out and got in on the act, and in the dinner club Donnybrook that ensued, Vera made her escape. Eventually, Devil Slayer managed to use his magic cape to teleport himself, Valkyrie, and the Hulk to a weird dimension that he liked to go to to chill out. Val and Eric talked things over and decided that it was time to transition this superhero soiree from misunderstanding, trademark, to team-up, copyright. Hooray! Tiny R in a circle. While the costumed crime fighters commiserated, the Hulk wandered off and had an antagonistic encounter with a magic monster called an Oort Beast that I decided is named Snorfels. Hooray! At Valkyrie's suggestion, Devil Slayer teleported the three heroes to Steve's sanctum to plan their next move. Steve and Eric bonded over the fact that they both had magic Dracula capes, hated evil cults, and considered themselves loners despite constantly joining organizations. While the new pals exchanged exposition dumps, Val and the Hulk went to get Nighthawk and Hellcat so that the defenders might confront Vera's cult at full strength. The duo of do-gooders headed to the gang's HQ on Long Island, where they found that Kyle was testing out a fancy new Nighthawk suit. The souped-up spandex sported night vision goggles, a built-in jetpack, and an onboard computer. The only thing this state-of-the-art outfit didn't come with was a competent pilot. The billionaire to Wellbird enthusiast tried to test his augmented avian-themed equipment against a makeshift mechanism of his own devising, which bore the melodramatic moniker, The Murder Machine. After a strong start, the affluent adventurer faltered and was about to be done in by his own deadly device. But, at the last minute, a timely if begrudging intervention by the Hulk prevented the contraption from living up to its name. Back at the Sanctum, Steve undertook an ill-fated adventure of his own. The Sorcerer Supreme attempted an astral journey through the demonic dimension from which Vera and her cult intended to summon their unholy army. Steve's hope was that by taking that unconventional route, his astral avatar could sneak into the cult's headquarters in the jungles of the Yucatan and steal back his enchanted eyeball amulet. Things seemed to be going well, but at the last minute, Ghost Steve was ambushed. Vera Gemini herself popped out of nowhere and used the Eye of Agamotto to solidify Steve's astral form and transform it into a writhing mass of demons from the torso down. Oh no! Astral Steve now looked like if Hieronymus Bosch had been put in charge of designing a centaur. Back in the Sanctum, Devil Slayer had been guarding Steve's corporeal form while his soul popped out to run some errands. Eric noticed that Steve's lifeless body was looking even more lifeless than before and decided to investigate. The caped cult hater teleported himself to Vera's temple, but was soon ambushed by the bird-beaked bozo who had swiped Steve's mystical MacGuffin. As Devil Slayer battled with his curiously countenanced counterpart, Vera discussed her plans with one of the demons she had summoned. Turned out that the malevolent Miss Gemini was half-demon on her mother's side, and had been previously spurned by both races. She had been working to get back into the good graces of her fully demonic brethren by smuggling them to Earth, where they had been adopting human disguises and doing bad stuff, so that when they invaded the planet en masse, the place would already be nice and shitty, just the way they liked it. The demon Vera had been chatting with adopted the guise of a U.S. Air Force general, and announced that he would use that persona to both sow dissent among humans and hopefully help trigger World War III. What a dick! Back in New York, the defenders arrived at Steve's sanctum and were surprised to be greeted at the door by Val's pal, Dollar Bill, who informed our titular non-team that Doctor Strange was dead. Gadzooks! 
Is this really the end of Doctor Strange? What is Dollar Bill doing in the Sanctum Sanctimonious? And what will Vera's demonic horde do when unleashed on an unsuspecting Earth? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... No. Mostly misdiagnosing Steve's death and inviting himself along on superhero adventures. And eating cult members, quoting Blue Oyster cult lyrics, and farting a lot. You know, typical demon stuff. The defenders gather in Steve's sanctum sanctimonious, horrified at the news of Steve's demise. Then Wong comes in and is like, What the fuck, Bill? He's not dead. He's just doing that creepy astral projection thing he does. How did you even get in here? The defenders are relieved, but that relief is short-lived, because Wong goes on to inform them that Astral Steve apparently isn't doing so hot, and was supposed to return to his body a while ago. Some force must be preventing his return. The gang asks if there's anything they can do to help, and Wong is like, Uh, I don't know, maybe if you find his soul, you could just kind of throw his body at it? That'd probably do something. I think he said his ghost form was going to poke around that cult in Mexico, so maybe it's still there. It's not a ton to go on, but the gang decides to load up Steve's body onto Nighthawk's private jet and head to Mexico. Dollar Bill says that he wants to go with them and film the whole thing for a documentary. Kyle is like, no way, he doesn't have any powers, and he's kind of dumb. Valkyrie is like, look who's talking. Bill, if you promise to be careful and not get murdered by demons, you can come with us on our trip. Bill agrees and everyone piles into Kyle's garishly painted private jet so they can try to throw Steve's body at his soul. Hooray! Meanwhile, at the cult's temple, Vera leads her followers in some intense chanting and completes the ritual that throws wide the floodgates to the demonic dimension. When her ceremony concludes, there's an explosion, and thousands of hideous creatures rush forth from a newly opened portal. The cultists celebrate their success, but their elation is short-lived. Once the demons are on Earth, the first thing they do is chow down on all the cultists who just summoned them. Vera watches as the host of evil creatures chomps up her most loyal underlings and thinks to herself, <laughs> chumps. Think I'll betray these demons too. Man, what an asshole. As Vera Gemini ruminates on how evil she is, the Defender's jet is approaching its destination. Sort of. They don't actually know where the place is, but hey, how big can Mexico be? Before our hero's geographic ignorance can become much of a factor, a more immediate issue presents itself. Remember how that one demon decided to dress up like an Air Force guy? Well, he orders some F-15 fighter jets to blow up Kyle's plane. Uh-oh. Nighthawk is pretty flustered by this turn of events, and refers to one of his default settings by yelling at the rest of the heroes and telling them that he is in charge. Hulk is like, Fuck that noise. True power derived from mandate of masses. Also... Hulk smash! And with that, the Green Goliath leaps from the jet and smashes the shit out of the attacking aircrafts. Hooray! Or not so hooray, because one of the jets still manages to shoot off its missiles and blow up Nighthawk's plane. Valkyrie, Hellcat, and Dollar Bill parachute down to the dense jungle below them, while Kyle uses his jetpack to carry Steve's body to safety. Meanwhile, near the temple where all the demonic hullabaloo is going on, Devil Slayer is locked in combat with that bird-beaked magic eyeball thief when he notices that demons are flooding the earth. He's not too stoked about this turn of events, especially when the demons start pitching in and help their beaked buddy by subduing Eric, which in turn gives Biko the opportunity to quote some Blue Oyster Cult lyrics at him. That'll show Devil Slayer. 
Speaking of people who like to quote Blue Oyster Cult lyrics for no apparent reason, Vera Gemini has taken a unique course of action. She's taken some of the top demon overlords to a casino in Alcapulco, where they've all dressed up like fancy lads to play a game of roulette, which will determine who gets to rule the earth. Okay... Vera uses some Blue Oyster Cult lyrics to inform them before the game begins that she is going to cheat to win. They all agree that that is fine and place their bets. Vera cheats and wins, so the fancy lads slash demons accept that she is now the ruler of the demons and gets to kill them all if she wants to. Huh. I guess there's a lot I don't understand about demonic hierarchies. Back in the jungle, Kyle is yelling at the other defenders and telling them that they all have to do what he says because he is in charge. You know, like a good leader would do. The rest of the gang is hard at work ignoring Kyle when the Hulk sees a demon flying by and leaps after it. Hellcat uses her grappling hook claw things to hitch a ride by latching onto the Hulk's apparently indestructible purple jorts. Hooray! The winged demon leads Patsy and the Hulk to Demon Central, where Devil Slayer is still fighting the belligerent, beaked Blue Oyster Cult fan. Hulk is pissed off because all the demons smell super shitty, because I guess eating all those cultists gave them some pretty bad gas. Hulk isn't too thrilled to see Devil Slayer either, and decides that he'll try to smash him too, because why not? While Eric leads Hulk on a chase that results in a great deal of demonic destruction, Hellcat manages to swipe Toothbeak's magic cape, which responds to her own minor psychic abilities. She shoves the now capeless jerk into a mass of writhing demons who presumably eat him or something. Hooray! While Patsy, the Hulk, and Devil Slayer are yucking it up around the temple, the rest of the defenders find themselves beset by a different horde of demons. This particular hellish host is led by a familiar-looking fiend. It's the Steve Soul Torso Demonic Centaur that Vera transformed Doctor Strange's astral avatar into at the end of the previous issue. Gross! Dollar Bill and Nighthawk drag Steve's unconscious body to safety, while Valkyrie battles his multi-demon-butted tangible soul. It's awkward for everybody. Although he is unable to talk, demon-assed Soul Steve is able to convey to Val with his eyes that he would like her to stab him to death with Dragon Fang, please. Val is like, Can I really go through with this and stab Steve's soul to death? Huh. Turns out, yup, I can. As soon as Steve's demonic form has been slain, his soul returns to his physical body, and he wakes up and is like, Thank you, Valkyrie. Thank goodness you realized that murdering my transformed avatar would not kill me, but would instead allow my soul to recombine with my body. Valkyrie is like, Yeah, I totally realized that. that that's for sure why I stabbed you, buddy. But our heroes have little time to celebrate Val's remarkable intuition, because a newly revived Steve informs his compatriots that unless they retrieve the Eye of Agamotto in the next few minutes and use it to reverse the Xenogenesis ritual, Vera's demonic forces will conquer the planet. The good news is, Steve now knows where Vera stashed the Eye. The bad news is, the Eye is hidden in a toxic demonic dimension. Steve can go there in astral form, but only a physical body can retrieve the amulet. The only person who can move fast enough to get the eye before the body succumbs to the dimension's uninhabitable environment is... Nighthawk. Well, it was nice not being conquered by demons for a while. We had a pretty good run. While Steve and Kyle prepare for their mission, the tide of battle at the temple has turned against our heroes. Vera joins the fray directly, and her and her fart monsters manage to subdue the Hulk and Eric. Things look pretty grim, but then... 
Hellcat pops in out of nowhere and manages to stuff Vera into the folds of her fancy new cape, stranding the half-demon would-be world-beater in that weird dimension that the cloak can send stuff to. Hooray! Say hi to Snorfels for me, Vera. As Patsy is rescuing the Hulk and Devil Slayer, Steve opens a portal to the realm where the eye is stashed. They have to fight a bunch of demons and stuff on the way, but eventually Nighthawk and Astral Steve manage to reach the mystical MacGuffin. Vera had put some defense spells on the eye, and it takes Ghost Steve a while to disable them. By the time Kyle is able to get his hands on the object of their quest, his body is just about to give out on him. The affluent avian aficionado passes out while clutching the eye. Oh no! Fortunately, his fancy new Nighthawk suit's jetpack has an automatic pilot feature built into it, so that when Kyle loses consciousness, his suit is able to carry himself and the Eye of Agamotto back to the clearing where Val is waiting for them. Steve goes back into his body and uses his recently retrieved amulet to banish all demons from Earth. Hooray! With the planet saved and the rest of the team recovering, a reflective Hellcat ponders the most significant development of the Defender's epic adventure. She has a cool new cape. Hooray! And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? I have been slightly better in that I am a little bit under the weather, but on the mend, otherwise fine. You just took me on quite a roller coaster with that response, Corey. Yeah, take it as you will, and good luck editing this later. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're on the mend, and I'm sorry you're not feeling great. Thank you. I'm feeling pretty good myself. Good. Got some eggnog in my coffee. Ooh. I know I've discussed it before, but... It seems incredibly irresponsible that they are willing to sell me eggnog in October. But, uh, hey, I'm, I'm taking advantage of this, uh, this loophole in the system that I found. Man, big eggnog doesn't care about responsibility. They just want your money. Yeah, well, they can have it. Yeah. If I can have their delicious sweet nog. It is a weird thing that there's only one type of nog that's eggnog. Yeah, you don't see other kinds of nog. No. It's not like... Olive oil nog. (laughs) Cheese nog. (laughs) Grape nog. No. I think you could maybe call like mulled wine grape nog. I think that's like glog. Wait, no. That's an Icelandic beverage. Oh, and then there's grog. Mm -hmm. Do you think grog is a corruption of grape nog? See... The base alcohol in grog, I believe, is brandy, which is distilled wine, so your story checks out. Yeah, it's grape nog. Grog. Grog. Pirates always drinking grape nog. Mmm. Pirates. That's why they're so filled with holiday cheer. So, what'd you think of this comic book? Man, it was pretty exciting. Uh, There was a lot of words. There was an exceptionally high word count in this issue. And it doesn't have the excuse that the last issue did of having two writers working on it. This was, I believe, all David Anthony Kraft's work coming up with all of those words. I mean, you know, except for the ones that he cribbed from Blue Oyster Cult song lyrics and then kind of smushed in there. Mm -hmm. Which there were definitely some weird ones of that. I wonder if it was like to an extent him being like job protection, like this is his John Henry steel-driving man, like, I can write more words than two people can write. Give me back my writing job. I want it all for me. Oh, was he in a career jeopardy of some sort at the time of this writing? I don't think he necessarily was. I think that may have just been, like, a personal exercise for him, you know, like, the last issue. was like, had a ton of words. Like, I think 
rivaled this one for amount of words, but I think this one does edge it out. But that was with two writers, and then he's like, I'm gonna, I'm going in, I'm doing it all myself. It was probably nighttime, so he had the writing prowess of two people. <laughs> oh, I forgot it worked that way. Yeah. I keep forgetting he was the inspiration for Nighthawk in that regard. He's a real nighty. <laughs> oh. Is that the new nickname that uh, Hellcat gives him? Nighty? Uh, I think maybe. She may have just been talking about the fact that he seems to be wearing a nighty. <laughs> what? Well, I mean, they're all wearing their spandex. That's kind of like pajamas. And oh. uh, it's more revealing than traditional pajamas. So I think it could be called a nighty. <laughs> Wow. Okay. Um, interestingly enough, I do want to get to this later. I was wondering if there was perhaps a different character that was a stand-in for David Anthony Kraft. But mm. we can get to that in a little bit. Because first, I want to talk about all of the Blue Oyster cult references in this issue. There are a lot, and there are almost certainly a lot that I missed. They re-reference a number of ones that they have in the past in terms of, of course, the Agent of Fortune as a character is still going strong, and the issue is called The Revenge of Vera Gemini. And there's, again, references to Dominance and Submission and The Red and the Black. Those are the four that I caught, but maybe there was more that I missed. There were, and I, there are almost certainly more that I missed because there's, like, a couple of pages, I think it's around like page 15 or 16, where it's kind of following the same form as the others, where they'll be kind of loosely peppered throughout, but then there'll be a couple of pages of incredibly dense dialogue that doesn't make sense. And that's where they were just shoehorning in a ton of Blue Oyster Cult lyrics, which I get is kind of fun, but it just came out as nonsense. And it made for some unintentional moments of comedy, I think, but if you're just reading it through and there's a part where as you're reading it, you're like, wait, that sounds really weird. That dialogue clangs. The captioning doesn't make sense. It was there that Blue Oyster Cult was carrying. I'm them. glad to hear you say that yeah. because I've been taking cold meds for a few days <laughs> and I was reading this and I was like, wow. So the Blue Oyster Cult references, I talked about some of them. They also reference Career of Evil again as a, both a song title, but then some of the lyrics from that are, I choose to steal what you choose to show, which is something that Vera Gemini ah. says, which when she says it, it makes no goddamn sense. And most of that page doesn't make I sense. I am so pleased to hear that because that was one of those things where I read it and then I was like, nope. And I read it again. <laughs> I was like, still nope. There was another really weird phrase in it where they're playing roulette in a game of chance with all of the demons to determine who gets to be the ruler of Earth. And that's when she says, I choose to steal what you choose to show. And that's when there's a group shot of all the fancy people in the casino. Mm -hmm. That is the Blue Oyster Cult. That is the inside cover of the album Agents of Fortune. Is them all standing around a roulette wheel. So that's why that's happening. And that's why that part of the story doesn't make any sense. Because they wanted to shoehorn that in. It's just like this whole page where it's just like, Oh yes, and some of the demons that we've summoned who have just murdered all of the humans... Um, like to dress up like humans wearing formal wear, and they decided to go for a game of roulette to determine who gets to rule the earth. And I'm telling them at the outset that I'm cheating, but also then I win and they're just like, well, okay, looks like you won. Yeah, I had a couple thoughts on that panel. <laughs> One is that the guy that I think is the second from the right bears a striking resemblance to a young Weird Al Yankovic. Oh, man. And uh, also, I think I 
called that panel of Vera Gemini's Gemini? Gemini? Gemini. Gemini's version of Macaroni I Win. Oh, it totally is. But all of the other demons just are like, yep, okay. They decide to play along with it. Guess we're going to (laughs) lose. Yeah, and I guess you get to destroy and subjugate us all. Mm -hmm. Oh, well. At least we got to wear fancy clothes for no goddamn reason. Yep, and hang out at this cool Acapulco gambling place. Yeah, and so I think there's a couple of reasons why that whole scene happens. One, so that they can use more references to red and black, like on a roulette wheel, and so that they can have the picture of them playing roulette like it is on the uh, on the interior art for the album, um, which was also used in the ads for the album that would run in like Rolling Stone and stuff. And... The other reason is so that they can have the steel ball from the uh, roulette wheel tossed in there, and it can be described as heavy metal fruit. Yeah, that was uh, pretty crazy. That is a lyric from the song ME262, which I think was a reference that I missed in the previous issue. I think that is, they made that Nighthawk's license number or something like that. I might be misremembering it. It might be a number on the jet or something, but I know I saw that number in one of these recent issues. Some deep BOC references. Yeah. Even as the gaming ball seems to hang in the air like a heavy metal fruit, I warn you, gentlemen, I choose to steal what you choose to show. That just doesn't make any goddamn sense. Nope. I thought it was me. I'm glad it's not. No. There's another scene in which... I think it's actually on the same page, but there's a lot going on on that page. You see the continuation of the Agent of Fortune's battle with Devil Slayer. Mm -hmm. And the Agent of Fortune says, I, Eric, and you've seen the end of an age. And you have fought your last crusade. You pledging your life to fighting demons. Now here's your chance. And uh, you see that Devil Slayer is being overwhelmed by a pile of writhing demons. And as that is happening, he says... This is the final outrage! (laughs) And so, end of an age, you fought your last crusade, and this is the final outrage are all lyrics from a song called The Golden Age of Leather. Far out. That's why those happen, but it does give you what to me was a hilarious visual of as he is being killed by demons. (laughs) uh, Devil Slayer saying, this is the final outrage! I think I may need to find a way to work that into my you know, arsenal of expletives. Yeah, well, I mean, I hope you don't wait until you get uh, consumed by demons, because that... No, I was thinking more so like a bad traffic light. Or... This is the final outrage! Yeah, just shouting that. It's so incongruous <laughs> a thing to say. It reminds me so much, I forget which kung fu movie it was, but the old teacher gets murdered by the diabolical pupil who's the rival to the hero. Mm-hmm. And as he is dying, the the old teacher says, I am damn disappointed to be dying in this way. Yeah. It's that kind of a thing. But it's also coupled with the idea of, as you are being killed by demons, just exclaiming, outrageous. Well, not inaccurate. <laughs> or also just the idea of, this is the final straw. I, <laughs> I have had enough of this being murdered by demons. Yeah, time out. Yeah. So I appreciate the song references. I appreciate the deep cuts to Blue Oyster Cult that are woven throughout the story. But in each of these, it seems like there has been 
one page where it's like, oh shit, I don't think we put enough Blue Oyster Cult stuff in here. Let's just make some word salad out of their song lyrics and not just put it on the page, but incorporate it into the plot in a way that really doesn't make any sense. Because, mm -hmm. yeah, the, the idea that the demons are like, okay, we'll play roulette to see who gets to rule the earth. And you've told us you're cheating, but okay, a deal's a deal. It's like in the 90s when people were putting sun-dried tomatoes on everything. How is it like that? Because... Oh, the Blue Oyster Cult song. Yeah, you're, you're saying, just like, I'll just throw some more of these on here to make it right. And it doesn't always work. I disagree. I think, unlike Blue Oyster Cult lyrics, <laughs> putting extra sun-dried tomatoes in everything, it was a golden age of culinary delights. They are pretty good. I miss that. This is a few years ago, but I was describing the 90s. I don't know what context was for me being asked to describe the 90s, but I said, the Clintons were in the White House and sun-dried tomatoes were in everything else. <laughs> <laughs> pretty good. Thanks. Hey, we just, what do we got now? Kale? Uh, I mean, I don't think kale's in everything. Um, I think a few years ago, Chipotle was making our play for that. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and that's kind of died down now. I don't know what the big food trend is these days. Acai berries? Acai. Oh. Um, avocado toast had a big showing. Sure, sure. And avocados in general, mm -hmm. I think, were, were big for a bit. But that's starting to calm down. Hmm. What's America's next big food? You know what I bet it'll be? Hmm. Whatever is the most heavy metal fruit. What is the most heavy metal fruit? I don't know. What do you think the most heavy metal fruit is? Oh, jeez. Um, a prickly pear? Prickly pear? It's got an alliterative quality to it that the name seems to make it sound more cutesy than you would generally get from heavy metal. It's very spiky, though. It is Kinda. spiky. Maybe a dragon fruit? Ooh. That seems pretty good. That's pretty good. Um, passion fruit? Maybe. Not so much. Yeah, sour. Yeah. I'm just mostly saying from the name. Like, I mean, heavy metal is passionate. Yeah, but it's not a bad fruit. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think passion fruit is kind of gross. Okay, how about this? What What do we know about heavy metal? It's intensity. That's kind of what you're looking for from heavy metal. Passion, intensity, heaviness. Okay, Buddha's palm. It's oh. got a cool name, and it's like all zest. Citrus. Yeah. Power. Just yeah. So I'm gonna say the most heavy metal fruit, Buddha's palm. You wanna hear something really heavy? You wanna hear something that's gonna kick your balls off? Man, it sounds like that's a good rival for dragon fruit. It also sounds like the name of an awesome movie, Buddha's palm and dragon fruit. Oh, could be like a modern Shaw Brothers classic. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. A modern classic. Yes. <laughs> Last issue, we were debating what we should call the Agent of Fortune. Because Agent of Fortune is too long a name, and it's also his title rather than his name. And he's got that toothy bird beak. And so we were saying, like, tooth beak. I don't think we had really cracked it. Mm -hmm. Patsy nails it out of the park. Yep. One go. Beak bean. Not bad. Pretty good. Man, Patsy Walker is a fucking delight in this issue. Yeah, she is hilarious. I think maybe my favorite part, and there's a lot to choose from, is when she decides to basically water ski on the Hulk. <laughs> he takes off, and as he is leaving, she hooks her grappling hook on his pants. Mm -hmm. And then just kind of air water skis behind him, like uh, like Kit Cloud Kicker 
in uh, Tailspin. But it was just such a fun moment, and then throughout it, she just kicks ass. She uses the word britches, says something to the effect of, mind if I hitch a ride on your britches. <laughs> that seems like a come on line. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the other things she did. I really like that she's into Dollar Bill. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I think it's funny because it pisses Kyle off. And also it was just kind of funny because I had not picked up on the idea that Dollar Bill was supposed to be any kind of like a heartthrob or anything before. But he is described by Patsy as both cute and a hunk, which was interesting. Mm -hmm. It also made me wonder if this was David Anthony Kraft, like, wolfmaning himself. Like, in the New Teen Titans... We saw that Terry Long was maybe supposed to be a stand-in for Marv Wolfman, an older man who was going to get to hook up with one of his creations that he had kind of had a crush on. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if this is David Anthony Kraft doing this, because he was a very young man when he was writing this. A little bit on the huskier side, film fanatic, kind of a counterculture type. I'm wondering if this was just like, oh, I'll write myself into the story and uh, have Patsy have a crush on me. Uh I don't know if that's the case, but... It kind of seemed like it was leaning in that direction. A lot more dollar bill screen time than we've seen in the past in this. Also, he's much more courageous than I would think a normal person would be. I was thinking that too, but as I thought more about it, it made more sense to me. The main thing that we know about dollar bill, other than the fact that he likes movies, is that he is very, very wealthy. Hmm. And I think wealth and privilege have a way of shielding you from consequences of your actions to the point where it just kind of doesn't occur to him that anything bad can happen to him because whenever he's done dumb shit before, he's got that golden parachute that just bails him out of any situation. So it kind of makes sense that he would just be like, well, nothing bad has ever happened to me, so I assume nothing will. Not so much courage as obliviousness, which seems to be the way that he's operating in this. What did surprise me was that he is able to just heft an unconscious Steve up like 20 feet into the air and lob him to Nighthawk. That seemed confusing to me. I I hadn't previously viewed him as a, like, physical powerhouse. Mm -hmm. I didn't think it was 20 feet. I thought he just sort of gave him, like, a little, like, a boost. And Nighthawk swooped down and picked him up. Maybe. It, It looked to me like he was at least hefting him into the air. And... Throwing an unconscious body up over your head, that's not an easy thing to do. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. No, I've learned that (laughs) one the hard way. I mean, maybe Kyle swooped down more than he was letting on there, but it looks like Dollar Bill is having trouble carrying Steve at all. And then Nighthawk says, hoist me up his body and follow me. And it looks like he's thrown the body there. I think he tossed an unconscious body up into the air, which, as I mentioned, not an easy thing to do. Well, I ought to try being really wealthy sometime. Maybe it just gives you superpowers. (laughs) I mean, it is kind of a superpower. It's both Batman and Nighthawk's superpower. Mm, True. A power that Nighthawk demonstrates in this issue, both in his entitlement in general, and what had been subtextual is made text in this that he should not be the leader, no one respects him, and he has not earned it. I think both Hulk and Val are just like, You can't just say you're the leader. That doesn't make you a leader. Yeah, I was surprised that Val, though, had a bit of reflection there where she felt 
almost uh, bad for him because she didn't assume the mantle of leader, even though it was kind of naturally hers to, to take and Steve wanted her to. Yeah, I hadn't remembered that. Did you? No, but it sounded good, so I was just Yeah, like, oh, I'm, I'm okay with it. I kind of do want to check out issue 42 again and see if maybe I just hadn't remembered that. But it does seem like, yes, she is the natural leader. It was odd to see that acknowledged and kind of gratifying to see that acknowledged. The other way that Nighthawk demonstrates his great wealth is he has a private jet that he has painted up in his Nighthawk colors mm -hmm. and uh, is flying around, which again, obviously with Kyle, the secret identity freshness genie is out of the bottle, but it just keeps coming up how bad he is at maintaining a secret identity. This is not like a bat plane that can be kept in a cave. It is clearly a luxury jetliner that he has painted to look like Nighthawk. I'm sure it is owned by Richmond Industries. He's just so bad at secret identities. I think he secretly or maybe not doesn't care and wants people to know that Kyle Richmond is Nighthawk. Yeah, he should be more protective of his secret identity because he started his career as a supervillain and never was prosecuted for that. Yeah, I don't know if there's a statute of limitations on supervillainy. Doesn't seem like there should be. No. I mean, he flaked out at the last minute, but he was trying to destroy the planet, I think, a couple of times. He should at least get some community service. <laughs> yeah, for maybe serving with the Defenders counts as community service. I don't know. I get the feeling sometimes he's really working their collective last nerve. Yeah, and in this issue more than most. Although, his special jetpack works pretty good and helps carry his unconscious body home with the uh, Eye of Agamotto. Yep. So that's a good time. Sure. There was a kind of odd scene where Wong is just Charlie Browning pretty hard. Charlie Browning? You know, acting like Charlie Brown, just like, a, oh, everybody else is out there having fun. I know, I felt Not bad me. for the guy. Me too. I was able to pick apart that in a way that made me feel less bad for him, though. Because initially my thought was just like, I was hearing the Charlie Brown music in the background, the... As everyone goes off, they take even unconscious Steve gets to go on the adventure. He says, So the wheel of fortune whirls ever on, as others strive to save the master, and indeed the very earth itself, Wong remains behind again. Alone. And that sounds pretty sad. But if you read it as, So, Wheel of Fortune whirls ever on, and as others strive to save the master, and indeed the very earth itself, Wong remains behind again. Alone. And what made me think that maybe that wasn't the way that it should be read, is you see, there's some kind of an ancient device there, but it's right next to a little television that has rabbit ear antennas, and he said the Wheel of Fortune whirls on, I think he might just be stoked to stay home and watch Wheel of Fortune. And it debuted a couple of years ago. And he's like, oh, finally. Finally. These something. assholes cleared out of the place. Mm. I get to remain home alone again. Make some Jiffy Pop. Yeah. Watch the wheel. All right. Except that stupid Pat Sajak. Uh, I saw him in a restaurant one time. Oh, yeah? Yeah. What was he doing? Eating. Mm, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Typical Pat Sajak. I also, it was... Odd because it was not connected, but it was within the same year of the theater that I used to work at had a film festival. And Vanna White was a producer for one of the movies. And so she came in as part of the film festival. And it was really weird because I knew that she was going to be coming in. But 
I hadn't seen Vanna White in about 20 years because I just hadn't paid attention. I don't have, like, network television. I just have, like, computer pretend TV. Mm -hmm. And so I couldn't summon in my mind what Vanna White would look like. And I knew, like, she's probably about, like, early 60s at this point. But I don't even know what a rich person early 60s looks like. Like a rich TV person, too, whose physical appearance is, like, a big part of their job. Mm -hmm. And so anybody who came in that was between the age of, like, 20 and 90, I was like, is that Vanna White? (laughs) And then when she did come in, it was like, oh, no, that's obviously Vanna White. Mm. Looked good. Yeah? Yeah. All right. Good story. Thanks. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Celebrity sightings in Portland, Oregon. Uh Uh-huh. One time I saw Dan Hedaya at a farmer's market. Who's that? He played Nick Tortelli on Cheers, and he's been in, like, a billion other things. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's he's one of my favorite character actors. Was he easy to recognize? Absolutely, he was. Mm. It's, it's, he's Dan Hedaya! Sure. I mean, there should be a map to his house on the back of the Constitution, because that man is a national treasure. There are a few things that we've learned that are threads that tie throughout comic book universes. And some of them are pretty obvious tropes that come up a lot. But one that I hadn't been aware was apparently a universal comic book trope is that farty lizard creatures love to enslave humanity. That's true. We saw it in the Teen Titans, and now we see it here. These demons are just farting up a goddamn storm. Hulk does not like these stinky critters. He hates these stink men. But these demons, they just don't give a fuck. The one that is carrying Patsy around, he really is basically saying he's he's content to fart the earth into submission. He's leaning into it. Yeah. Patsy says, hey, freak face, don't you believe in baths? And he says, witless woman, earth shall soon be made into our environment and if humanity chokes into extinction on our sulfur sweet air so be it sulfur sweet air Ooh, nasty that is the worst kind of fart too the sweet sulfur (laughs) fart it's the nastiest (sighs) that's the uh the sweet fart from the uh, fart dictionary yeah Corey's dad jim was obsessed with this book called the fart dictionary I think farts are pretty funny. Nobody thinks farts are funnier than Jim. That is true. He has almost cried laughing from the prompt. Hey, Jim, do you remember when you farted in that Safeway 20 years ago? <laughs> and the tears just start coming out of his eyes. It's like, it was so bad. <laughs> I think I might find Jim thinking farts are as funny as he does, as funny as Jim finds farts. That's entirely possible. It's so funny. Remember sitting around with him listening to the, I think it's the Adam Sandler skit about quitting um, smoking or something. Yeah, where the hypnotist keeps farting. And yeah, again, tears just streaming out of his eyes. And he started just saying like, it's true. It's true. (laughs) What's true? (laughs) Have you been in a situation where a hypnotist blamed his farts on you? Oh, man. Ah, Jim. Jim. What did you think of the art in this issue? You know, I thought it was pretty good. Had we seen the particular uh, team-up before? of? of I think we've seen uh, Hannigan and Green. I think they were in the last issue. 
uh, there's a different letter or this issue, which I think gave us some different sound effects than we're used to seeing, which I always appreciate. There were parts where I really liked the art. I thought, I thought it was pretty inconsistent, and it at times veered towards a really cartoonish style, which sometimes works, especially with, like, demonic stuff. And I didn't mind it for that, but it was kind of all over the place, and there were a lot of scenes where it just... It had kind of an unfinished look to it. Yeah, I noted the inconsistency as well, especially in some of the faces. Like, there's a scene in there where Nighthawk's got, like, two different sized eyeballs, and it looks pretty yeah, pretty weak. And that, that's actually something that we've seen with Dan Green a lot before. He was the inker who was doing some of Giffen's pencils when Giffen was going for a Kirby pastiche that I don't think he quite got. It's not as jarring as it was in that instance, but... I don't know. There are places where I really, really enjoyed the art in this, but especially when you saw a crowd scene a lot of the times, you'll see a few defined faces and the rest will just be kind of a mash of... Hellspawn. Yeah. Yeah. Just a mash of Hellspawn without any really defined features, which can work, but for me in a lot of ways it, it didn't. But as I said, there were places where I really thought it shone, and I actually really like the cover of this issue. And I think that uh, Hannigan draws a really nice Hulk face, mm-hmm. which which I liked. Hulk face was good. Man, that octopus on, I think, page six is pretty jacked up, though. It's got a tentacle that looks like an elephant nose. Hulk. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, you get to do that when it's, like, weird and eldritch sorceress shit. Put like, tentacles in the wrong place. Yeah, you can put whatever you want, man. It's a Cthulhu demon. It reminds me of the Greek cuisine downtown. You used to have this <laughs> giant purple inflatable octopus. purple octopus on top of it. I never actually went there, did you? Oh, yeah, it was good. That was yeah. a fun place. Yeah. They got shut down by the OLCC, like, multiple times. The Oregon Liquor Control Commission. They're a uh, very stringent puritanical organization that controls liquor sales in Oregon. But, uh, yeah, that is a crazy-looking purple octopus, but I kind of appreciate that. It's like, well, it's not just an octopus, it's a demonic octopus. Maybe they got elephant trunks? Who mm. can say? Not I. Nor I. There's a lot I don't know about demonic octopuses. And uh, it's not easy for me to admit that. It takes a big man. Thank you. I enjoyed Hellcat's use of... uh, Usually we hear uh, bimbo is a gendered insult. Yeah. And I like that she flipped that and um, said, Bon voyage, bimbo, to whoever she was fighting with on page 22. I believe that was... Beak bean that yeah. she was talking to, the agent of fortune. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was a nice twist. And I liked that it resulted in her getting a shadow cloak of her very own. I know, that's so cool. She's got gonna have like legit powers now. Well, I mean she had legit powers. Like, I mean, you know, she's had a lot of like a lot of athleticism, but also minor telekinesis and increased agility and strength. So, you know, that's nice. Yeah, but it's not a cloak you can pull a machine gun out of. No, no. And I liked that she said, it's just like Doctor Strange's cape, but better, because it's mine. She's so fun in this. She's a real fucking treat. Yep. It's very odd for me to say somebody's a real fucking treat, not ironically, (laughs) but but she really is. Yeah. You ready to get into the minutiae? Let's. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Yeah. Corey, what was your favorite sound effect in this issue? Let's see. I had one that was the sound effect, but also the kind of supporting dialogue to the sound effect mm. that made it my favorite. 
And it was the panel on page three, where basically all of the, the cultists who have summoned forth the, the demons mm-hmm. um, get destroyed. Right. And there's a big explosion, and they're probably also at the same time just like, ah, oh, shit, this isn't what I wanted to have happen. But the n- noise of the explosion is ba-boom, but it's supported by uh, two little word boxes that say duped, betrayed. Yeah, and they're spread out, so it's duped, ba-boom, betrayed. Mm-hmm. Pretty good. That is pretty good. I had ba-boom written down as well. I liked that one. I also liked woomph which is the noise of the Hulk destroying a jet. And uh, yeah, there were just a bunch of fun ones in there. We saw an actual zap, which mm-hmm. is kind of rare. Mm-hmm. And a foom and a dacoom. I had a, a Hulk uh, destroying the obelisk, making a nice uh, cram. Cram is always fun. I, I am a fan. A lot of fun sound effects. As I said, we had a different letter in this issue. It was Rick Parker. Nice job overall. And uh, I always appreciate it when we get different sound effects. Corey, in this issue, as every issue of a Defenders comic, there is a best defender and a worst offender. Who is your best defender and who is your worst offender? Let's start with worst offender. This was tough because I felt like for the most part, everybody really pulled their weight in this issue. I agree. So I had to go with, um, and it pains me to say this, the Hulk. Oh, really? Yeah, because I thought... It was cool that he stomped those airplanes out of the sky. And he smashed so many stink men. He smashed so many stink men, but at the end of it all, his efforts were, in fact, uh, for naught, because he was overcome by demons and had to be rescued by his teammates or non-teammates. Yeah, I think he smashed so many stink men, though. He had a good show, but I got to look at the, the end result yeah. of the effort to, to figure out. Who gets the the worst trophy? I I had him in running for my best. He didn't get my best defender. For my worst, I had Kyle. Kyle, so please. He, it's tough because you have to balance it. Like you said, I think they, for the most part, all did a pretty good job. In terms of impact, his impact in this story was huge. Yeah, but you look at the fact that he spent most of the issue whining about the fact that he had no leadership skills and nobody listened to him. And... He did a really bad job in that regard and then made a big point out of when they were parachuting out of the plane. He's like, it's a pretty good thing I told you guys to parachute out of the plane or you'd all be dead. And I think they would have parachuted out of the plane regardless. He was being what uh, Tina refers to as a fisherman, which is when you're just like, hey, um, I folded the laundry and I (laughs) emptied the dishwasher. (laughs) Could I have some kudos, please? Yeah, that's exactly what was what Nighthawk was doing, except for he would never fold the laundry or empty oh, no. the dishwasher. No, no, no. Fucking Kyle. The the point in his favor was he did end up going into the demon dimension and rescue the Eye of Agamotto. But I think it's telling that the most impressive feat he accomplished was while he was unconscious. <laughs> And his suit did all of the work for him. He ended up going through the dimension, grabs the eye, and then his new feature on his suit is a kind of autopilot that not only returns him home, but like does a Billy from Family Circus where it retraces all of his elaborate steps so that he doesn't need to get led by Steve through the demon dimension and plops him back on Earth with the Eye of Agamotto. So nice that he retrieved it. But it really is the only impressive thing that he did, and he did it while he was passed out. So it was more so his technology. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know. I gave him actually a runner-up spot because just putting myself in his position, not, of course, being a super person, the idea of jumping into basically, like, holding my breath is not my favorite thing to do. No? And jumping into a demon dimension where I had to do that for a super long time is very scary. Yeah, that would be scary. Mm -hmm. That's true. But he just, he did it. Yeah. Like a trooper. Okay. I guess so. He's still my vote for worst. Okay. Conversely, I think there will perhaps be less acrimony in this decision. Do you have Patsy Walker as Hellcat being the best? Absolutely. As did I. Nice job, Patsy. Not that there wasn't competition. Uh, I, I had the Hulk as my runner-up because he smashed so many stinkmen and airplanes. Mm-hmm. So much smashing. Yeah, he smashed really And good. he sassed Kyle real good the whole time he was doing it. That was pleasing. Yeah. And I also had Val doing a pretty good job. Mm-hmm. You know, knowing that look in Doctor Strange's eyes that says, please stab me to death, instantly recognizing it and being like, I don't want to, but okay. See, that's the thing why I could never do this job. I mean, there's a lot of reasons. <laughs> right. But that's a big one. I just, I wouldn't, like, I'd just be like, mm, uh, uh, I don't know. It's pretty okay. permanent. Corey, give me your best stab me to death eyes. Okay just look like you're pooping <laughs> yeah see it's all right like, all right I'll, I'll, I'll give you <laughs> nope no you wouldn't no, no. Yeah. you look like you're waiting for me to get your punchline <laughs> <laughs> yeah i guess we just don't have what it takes to be defenders no oh well but i even had uh dollar bill doing a pretty good job both in terms of his obliviousness slash bravery and his uh being able to toss unconscious steve aloft so overall, the defenders all did pretty well, but Patsy Walker was a fucking delight in this issue. And she gets a fancy new cape, and she cracks wise in a way that was actually funny while she was doing it, and she air water skied on the Hulk's pants, mm-hmm. and was the person who took out the Agent of Fortune when Devil Slayer wasn't able to. So just for all of those reasons, great job, Patsy. You are truly the best defender. Yep, hands down. Which brings us to what is rapidly becoming my favorite category. Behold or Be Gone. This week's Behold or Be Gone is inspired by Patsy Walker Hellcat. The reason Patsy was able to control the Cloak of Shadows is because in previous issues of The Avengers, she got taken to... Titan, the moon of Saturn, and trained in psychic Jedi powers and Kung Fu by a fancy bald lady named Moondragon. Mm-hmm. Behold or be gone, receiving Jedi training on Titan, the moon of Saturn. Do you want to have this happen to you or not? Um, is the result of it that I can read people's minds? The result of it is you end up with Patsy powers. So you have low-level telekinesis and you're very agile. Yeah. Yeah? See, I like the results. I hate school. That's true. I hated school school so much. And I don't think this is an easy, this is a very intensive training, and you're doing it on the moon of Saturn. Wait, there's not math, right? There's probably some math involved. Ooh, that's not my strong suit. Yeah. Otherwise, school's pretty okay. Yeah. Yeah, You, you, you liked school better than me. Yeah. I mean... Most people like school better than me. (laughs) Despite my lifelong love of learning. I know, it's a weird one. Yeah, what can you do? 
can't dovetails with your lifelong not love of being told what to do by other people. That is fair. <laughs> <laughs> the other problem with getting this training on Titan is that you're on Titan. This is where Thanos lives, which is not great. It's also where Thanos' dad, who's a nicer guy, but also makes some odd decisions. That's where he lives. So it's tough for me because I hate school. I don't want to deal with Thanos. I don't want to deal with Thanos' dad. But if you're on Titan, the moon of Saturn, I bet gravity's lower. Mm -hmm. I bet you can slam dunk. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go behold. Oh, well, good reason as any. Yeah. yeah. And you, you can take those powers once you have them back to Earth and probably use that increased agility and a little bit of telekinesis to slam dunk down here, too. Oh, man. And do it while wearing a fancy cape. Yeah! Nobody wears fancy capes when they slam dunk anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> Dwight Howard did it in one slam dunk contest. Oh. But nobody has since, I don't think. Oh, what a waste. Yeah, I know. So, two beholds? Behold! Oh, jeez. That's a big one. Yeah. You want to give it a try? Behold! <laughs> nope. <laughs> little Louis Armstrong there. Yeah, Louis Armstrong, <clears throat> maybe Cookie Monster. Venom. Behold! Kronos. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's good, dude. Your Venom voice is on point. Yeah. Okay! What the fuck do you mothers want to hear? This is a difficult category for this issue, but what was your pie not made out of steel? What words in this issue did you like the best, much like you would like a pie were it not made out of steel? Man, you are right. This is a tough choice. There are, as we discussed earlier, so many bits of dialogue that are good, and um, also all the exposition is, is very alliterative and flowery in a fun way. Yeah, it for me it came down to like there were three categories that I wanted to choose them from. There was flowery purple prose exposition setup stuff that was really fun that I, I genuinely enjoyed. There was snappy dialogue, most of that coming from Patsy. Mm -hmm. And then there was weird shit that didn't fit because they were shoehorning in Blue Oyster Cult lyrics, which cracked me up. Mm -hmm. And so, I... So I picked one of each of those. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah. I should have done that. I, I have a fourth category, which Ooh. was one of my choices, and that's every time Hulk used the word stinkman. <laughs> That was a real treat, too. But um, I'm going to go with my choice, which falls into category number one in your list. And that's on page six. It's right after all the, the demons come to Earth. Mm -hmm. And it's a bit of exposition that says, The verdant splendor of lush Mexican jungle withers and gives way before the odociferous oozing tide of an alien environment spilling like charnel sewage into our world. That's pretty nice. Almost... Lovecraftian. Yeah. My entry in that category is the panel that has the... Uh, Snuffleupagus? <laughs> yeah, the Snuffleupagus octopus. Then softly at first, but rapidly swelling in volume, it begins. A malevolent chant rising and falling in cadence, frenetically expressing the evil aspirations of the cult, now focused on this one crucial moment, this one ultimate event. The sacrilegious ceremony destined to culminate with the initiation of an unthinkably vile era. Exogenesis! The rebirth of the demon race on Earth! The baleful, lambent glow emanating from the arcane pyramid grows ever brighter as the demonic incantation approaches its apocalyptic climax. Damn. Yeah, it's... So many words. So many words. And those ones have more of a almost Stan Lee feel to it, where there's just, like, so much 
bombast and the fact that it includes the word frenetic when that is the pace that I'm reading these words at. I really enjoyed. Mm -hmm. For the Patsy dialogue, I gotta go with she uses her grappling hook to hitch a ride on one of the fart lizards and says, thanks for the lift, lizard legs, but I'm a swinger and I've got business with beak bean down below. (laughs) Then she jumps off him and says, hi guy, guess who? It's me, the happy-go-lucky hellcat. And he says, paws off, pussycat. She is such a fun character in that, and I really enjoyed that. But I think even despite how much I genuinely enjoyed those, my favorite is probably either the heavy metal fruit hanging in the air that is the roulette ball, Mm -hmm. or Devil Slayer saying, this is the final outrage! (laughs) It is the final outrage. (laughs) And that was my pie not made out of steel. Mm -hmm. Every issue of a Defenders comic has a character who acts counter to their previously established character or motivation in a way that furthers the plot. To paraphrase the fat boys from Crush Groove, they just gotta be a sucker. In this issue, who was your sucker? That also was tough for me because people were really quite true to their characters in this issue. But I went with Vera Gemini Mm. because there is a part in there where she offers Devil Slayer partnership, like kind of says, hey, do you want to go study and like rule the earth together? Which is totally counter to everything before where she's like, I'm going to fucking destroy everybody, human, demon, whatever. I'm going to get my revenge. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be a total badass on my own. Oh, except, hey, dude, if you want to join me, it'd be cool. Yeah, I get that. I was actually tempted to go with Devil Slayer for his response to that, which is like, hmm, it's pretty tempting, but no. I think he was just being polite. That seems like a weird thing to be polite about. Uh, Sometimes it's just Just, ingrained behavior. Sure. Who I decided to go with was Dollar Bill. Most of his actions and words I thought were very much in character, except the very opening panel when he says that he would rather go on this adventure than even get a front row seat at the new Francis Ford Coppola movie. Dollar Bill is a film student. Mm -hmm. Why would he think that the front row seat would be the best seat at a movie theater? That's one of the worst seats. Nobody ever wants to sit in the front row. Maybe it's one of those where afterwards the director people come out and talk to you and he wants to be able to engage them. Yeah, but I mean, his neck's going to be killing him from looking up at the screen the whole time. I know, I hate that. Yeah. We had to do that once. It's bad news, Dollar Bill, and that's out of character for him. He's a cinephile. He knows you want to sit in the middle of the theater, both on the X and Y axis. Like, right in the middle. In the middle. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, that was Dollar Bill being a sucker. (laughs) Fair enough. Sartorially speaking. Which elements of fashion in this issue did you feel were worthy of note? Man, uh, Vera Gemini in her demon form has a crazy red dress on. She does. It's more pronounced on the cover than it is anywhere else, but it looks like she just kind of climbed inside of a flying V guitar and then put a belt around it. Yeah, it's bonkers. It's got, I don't even know how to describe, it's like if shoulder pads were spikes that were like two feet long. Yeah, it outdoes Clea's like triangle smock Mm -hmm. thing it is a weird outfit and but it actually looks pretty good and it kind of complements her uh her demon armpit wings Mm -hmm. in a way that i wasn't expecting uh so i guess good job vera in general vera's demon form 
is I mean it's definitely lizardy, mm-hmm. but it's lizardy in a way that suggests that she might be made out of fire. It's an interesting look. Mm-hmm. But uh yeah, she really pulls off that dress in a way that I, I didn't know was possible. So yeah, I had the same choice. Oh. Did you have anything else? No, that was it. I had all eggs in one lizard basket. Yeah, me too. Patsy's cape looks good with her uh with her cat suit. Mm-hmm. I hope she wears it around more. Yep. I really hope that cape sticks because it's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. It does lead me to believe that maybe Devil Slayer isn't going to be sticking around, which I was kind of hoping he was because he seems like a neat character. But it does seem weird to have two characters with shadow cloaks. I bet Steve is going to start feeling pretty weird about like little cape competition. I bet he's going to pretend that his can teleport too. <laughs> He'll just hide inside of it. You can't see me. <laughs> I'm in another dimension right now. It, St- Steve, I can see your feet still. <laughs> My feet aren't. The, the rest of me totally in another dimension. Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules. Mm-hmm. In this issue, what are the Hulk's rules? So, I think I'm just going to quote him verbatim because it really gets the point across. This is something that we both discussed before regarding leadership being... Mm a quality that is not something you can just declare Mm -hmm. and have it be a thing. And Hulk says to Nighthawk, sitting and looking serious does not make you smart or boss. (laughs) Do you think he's using the slang? No. Like, I I like the idea that he is though. That's not boss at all. Yeah. You're not smart or cool. No, no. I think that's a really good sentiment. And uh, yeah, I had the Hulk's rule being they who dealt it, Get smashed! <laughs> I don't like that rule at all. Eat your farts like Cory. <laughs> I don't do it. That's the thing. No, but you should. <laughs> it's all these There's listeners. a whole song saying that you do it. I know. Uh, <laughs> we all just listen to it. No, uh, the Hulk is saying that uh, it is more polite if if you pass gas, then uh, you should cookie monster the air up that contains your fart particles because they don't taste bad to you and then they'll be filtered through your system again. It's the polite thing to do. And uh, it's really what you have to do if you don't want to get smashed by the Hulk. I feel like every 50 episodes or so, we do go back and make this disclaimer about <laughs> Rick's song, Lovely As It Is, <laughs> is slightly inaccurate. Because you do not actually eat your own farts. No. Or no. anyone else's that I that I know of. What no. you do in your time no, is your business, no, of course. No fart consumption policy. <laughs> yeah, well, you really should rethink it because it's the polite thing to do. If you fart, cookie monster up all the air that you can. Um, so that no one else has to smell it. Well, if I see Hulk around, I sure will. But otherwise, I'm sorry. Okay. I'm sorry, Hub. That's okay. It's still the Hulk's rule. Glad we cleared that up for any new listeners. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Corey, I think it's time for us all to write some wongs. All right. In the year of our Lord, 1978, and the month of our Lord, June What Wongs needed writing? Well, we find our hero in the unfortunate position of having a bad summer cold. Oh, no. It's awful to have a cold. Having a cold in the summer is just gross. Seems unfair, too. And unfair. So to make himself feel better, he had procured um, some bacon and eggs to make himself a nice breakfast. Dozen eggs, by the way, in 1978 were going for 48 cents a dozen. And Mm. a pound of bacon was a mere dollar twenty. Mm. Uh, he was also decked out in his Star Wars family duds, which he managed to purchase for $6.49. <laughs> yeah. 
1978 prices. The other thing he did was often a source of comfort and something that's come up in a few of the Wong segments in the past, which is the funnies. Oh. So in June of 78 was the premiere of what would go on to become the very famous Garfield franchise by Jim Davis. Now, I know you're expecting me to say Wong thought it was a delight and it helped him feel better. He thought it was pretty fucking stupid to the degree that he was like, Steve, (coughs) come here, Stu, get a load of this garbage. Steven thought it was hilarious. Oh, no. Did it supplant his previous love for Kathy? It's at least vying for it. So Steve was so taken with the antics of this pasta-loving feline that he decided it would make the world a much better place if many more people had access to this this lovely, lovely comic. And so he got his eye of Agamotto, and he went in and he just broadcast worldwide to all the journalists that he could think of, hey guys, you need to put this in your publications. And needless to say, many years later, 2002, Garfield became uh, the Guinness Book world record holder for the most <laughs> widely syndicated cartoon strip ever. Oh my. And that was Steve Strange's doing? It was. All because of Wong's <laughs> cold medicine adult <laughs> antics about not liking this stupid cat cartoon. Man, we both loved that when we were kids. I know, and I'm so disappointed it doesn't hold up. Yeah, especially the really early ones are just weird and almost surreal in how I don't understand where the joke is even supposed to be in a lot of them. But when I remember when I was a child, just the expressions on Garfield's and Odie's faces alone were enough to just propel me into peals of laughter. Yeah, the half-lidded eyes of Garfield was just like, oh, that is one sassy, tired cat. Mm-hmm. A testament to Jim Davis's cartooning skill. That was one thing that Wong and Steve were up to. But while Wong was hanging out, trying to make himself feel better, he had maybe the breakfast foods, he's also trying to feed the feed a cold, starve a fever, is that how it goes? That's how I always remember it. He was also just sitting at home, drinking a lot of ginger ale, watching Wheel of Fortune, and a TV ad came up that was for Kentucky Fried Chicken. Hmm. Wong's not a... Huge fried chicken fan, particularly not of KFC, but something caught his eye in it, and he noticed that it really did make him hungry and want some fried chicken. And there was a young actor in it, a, a young Steve Gutenberg. Um, <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah, this is his first big break, was in a Kentucky Fried Chicken ad opposite the Colonel. And oddly, went on to star in the 1977 movie. His first starring role in a, a movie was The Chicken Chronicles, which was a high school romp. Uh, about a teenager who worked in a fried chicken franchise and was trying to avoid being fired because he didn't want to be drafted in Vietnam. Mm. Set in the late 60s. And Wong thought there was something about this kid. He, he, had, uh, he had a big, bright future ahead of himself. So Wong actually wrote him a fan letter. and uh, Wait, they... based on the KFC ad? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Is he still sick? Is he still He's on, still like, a little bit loopy from the cold medicine. Codeine. <laughs> well, and that does play into what happened next, because he ended up striking up a, a fast friendship with Steve Gutenberg. Of course. And Steve Gutenberg was like, oh, man, thank you so much, Wong. I, I, I'm out here. I'm filming another movie out in, in Hollywood, but uh, I left I left some of my books at home. Would, would you mind? Would you mind grabbing them for me? 
And Wong got a little bit fuzzy with the details, and he had had a lot of cold medicine, and some mystical cold medicine from Steve's cabinet. Ooh. And uh, he got a little bit turned around with what errands he was running, but he looked at the list and it said, like, Gutenberg B, and then it just kind of trailed off. And he's like, Gutenberg, I gotta get the Gutenberg Bible. Oh, no. and so he went to the auction and started bidding on one of the Gutenberg, the Gutenberg Bible, which was the first book ever printed. It was like a bajillion dollars. It went for $21 million in oh. this is 1978 dollars. And part of that is because Wong just kept upping the bidding... Because he thought he needed to get that for his new friend, Steve Gutenberg. Because it was his. Mm. Uh, and eventually he just kind of nodded off and dropped the paddle that he was bidding with. And the, the book ended up selling to somebody else, which was for the best, mm -hmm, really. Because mm -hmm. uh, that was not what Steve Gutenberg needed. And sure, Steve Gutenberg would go on to earn $28 million in his lifetime. But not at that time. Mm. He was years away from that sweet, sweet police academy money. No, oh, true. Yeah, Wong ended up feeling better after a couple of days, and he, he worked it out with uh, with Steve, and he ended up uh, getting himself some fried chicken. It was delicious. Then he started feeling better. Sounds like a, a good way to recover. <laughs> and that is what Wong was doing <laughs> in June of 1978. Uh. Eating fried chicken with his new friend, Steve Gutenberg. Damn. After failing to purchase the Gutenberg Bible. Not bad. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us, listeners. This was a romp. Mm-hmm. Man, we have finally tied up the uh, Blue Oyster Cult saga with the Defenders. And we just finished up the Trigon saga. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of bigger runs coming to an end. That's kind of a nice piece of synchronicity. We'll be back next week to find out how the Titans are dealing with the aftermath of Trigon's attack. Mm -hmm. And we'll be back in two weeks with the Defenders and their... 61st issue. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's going to have Spider-Man in it. Oh, yeah. That'll be fun. Nice. I like that guy. Sure. Yeah, he's got power. He's got responsibility. That guy's got it all. I don't want either of those things. You don't want power? Not that kind. Not if it comes with responsibility. Exactly. Yeah. You want just uh, those telekinetic powers you'll get on Titan. Easy powers. Slam dunk powers. Mm. Yeah, I could use that. That would be so much fun. Anybody that has ever seen me play basketball, I could win so much money from them. <laughs> if all of a sudden you just could jump just like the dickens. Yeah. Yeah. You still need to dribble. <laughs> you can't just grab it and run. No, sorry. You somebody should tell that to those kids out front. You may have heard on the podcast, Finley barking at the children playing basketball. I hadn't really watched the kids play basketball. They are fucking terrible. Oh, yeah? I mean, they're children. Mm -hmm. But still, I don't think I saw one of them make a shot. Did you go to school? No. No. That was the younger man in those days. <laughs> When Lee and I beat those drunk teenagers at basketball. I believe they were barefoot. One of them. One of them had shoes, Corey. Okay. Well, taught, taught them a lesson. Sure. If you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com. If you would like to leave us a review on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using, well, I think that'd be a nice thing for you to do. We're... All up in many other corners of the internet, places you might expect to find us and places you might not. 
We've got a grinder account these days, courtesy of friend of the show, Devin Tuhey. We are on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're on Facebook mm-hmm. and Tumblr and uh, Twitter. Yep. And uh, Lisa runs an Instagram page for the show. So those are all things you can do. I like to call Tumblr Tumblr, you may have noticed. Mm. I think it's because I also liked to call, there was a Masters of the Universe figure who was a bee, uh, who was named Buzz Off, but I had always thought his name was Bumblor. <laughs> and I think <laughs> Bumblor is a really fun name. Yeah? Yeah. No, yeah, Tumblr sounds like Bumblor. That's complicated. Yeah, I guess it is. If you would like to donate to the show monetarily, you can do so at ttwasteland.gmail.com. If you do, you get access to a bunch of bonus material, including the monthly podcast that I do with Lisa called What the Duck, a podcast most foul but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That is a Howard the Duck podcast that we do every month, and that's a lot of fun. There's also a bunch of other bonus audio material up there. And uh, I've been making weekly videos lately for uh, donors at a $5 and up level. And I'm making some videos that are just available to all of the patrons too. So if you want to check that out, you can do so at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. And uh, if you feel like throwing a couple bucks our way, I would really appreciate that. And is there anything else I need to say? No. Good. (laughs) Well, Corey, it seems like the show is ending. This is the final outrage! Bye! Bye. And they knew it! Smash them. Yeah. Stink men, eat your farts. Be like Corey. <laughs> oh, you're just perpetuating the <laughs> misunderstanding. I know. Well, yeah. It's fun. Uh-huh. Get a beverage? No, I should get a beverage. Shit. I'll be right back. Do you want to pause the recording? Nah. That's cool. Okay. Why don't you make a secret message? <laughs> Hey everybody, I'm supposed to think of a secret message while Hub's away, but I'm a little bit sick and I can't think of anything. So there you go.